Hello and welcome to this, the 49th episode in this second series of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader and chief of Irish theatre, Angus Og McAnally, artistic director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I am a 21-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And of course, this second series is brought to you thanks to the very generous support of the Arts Council of Ireland. Now, each week we bring you these conversations absolutely free of charge. We've promised that we won't ever charge for this podcast, but we are looking for you to put your money into Irish theatre, to put your money where your mouth is and support Irish theatre. The whole ethos behind this podcast is to support, promote and to celebrate all that is great about Irish theatre. So how best can you support? Very simply, go and buy yourself some tickets. Get out there, buy yourself a ticket for a night out at the theatre show. Uh, there'll be a theatre show near you, wherever you are on the island of Ireland. There's a huge amount of work going on at the moment. You get a great night out and we keep the theatre machine ticking over. But of course, there are ways you can support without even having to put your hand in your pocket. Go and tell people about this podcast, whether that's in person, over a pint or a cup of coffee, or by sharing the link as a Facebook post or retweeting on Twitter or Snapchat or Instagram or any of those other great platforms. Do please go and subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes and listen back to all our previous episodes, both in the second series and the original series. If you're not on iTunes, then all these episodes are streamable and available for direct download over at riseproductions.ie do please leave us a review on iTunes if you would or simply click to rate us on their 5 star rating system and as ever you can follow us on Facebook we are facebook.com forward slash riseproductionsireland or you can follow us on Twitter we are at Rise Ireland and it's been another great week at Rise Towers Uh, the feedback from the infamous episode 100 last week was unanimously positive it was an interesting one a new take on the podcast and I was delighted to be able to bring the amazing Colt Cabana to Irish theatre audiences really interesting to get that feedback from Chicago and all these new wrestling fans going hey I've just discovered your podcast it's great so it was really great fun and uh, just lovely to do Uh, I was delighted to have Colt on he's a superstar and he's a pal now which is kind of utterly bizarre to me but it's, it's a fantastic thing so look that brings us to our guest for this week, and it is none other than the fantastic Ronan Phelan. Now, Ronan is a guy who I am a massive fan of. He is making some incredible work at the moment, really interesting, visually striking, nuanced, subtle, exciting, just vibrant. I love him. He's a great guy. So let's get straight into his story. Here he is, the brilliant Ronan Phelan. The wonderful Ronan Phelan on the podcast. Hello, my friend. How are you? I am very well indeed. I am delighted to have you. Uh, will you please, as everyone else has done, take me back to the very beginning. When was the initial spark for you about an interest in theatre? Um, oh, an interest in theatre. I was very involved in like, I was an outgoing child. I was one of those. So I was drop kicked into speech and drama classes quite early. I was My first memory of it is of being about four in... The, well, I must be five actually because we'd only moved to Malahide and I was in the Sea Scouts building and I was dressed head to toe in various uh, pairs of tights as the mole from Wind in the Willows and from that um, I felt that I received the appropriate level of adoration that my existence requires so from that I was kind of hooked and was in pursuit of, uh, of applause <laughs> ever since so yeah I was in... Uh, speech and drama all through my childhood and through school I did a lot of school plays the school that I went to school where in Marino had a very 
active school, con- very competitive school concert at the end of every year in okay. which every class would perform. It was quite old school when I think back on it now because uh, having read uh, Portrait recently, I mean, there wasn't a huge difference between the school play that Joyce describes in Stephen De- in in Belvedere uh, to the one that happened in the 90s uh, in on Griffith Avenue. So, for example, one class, it would just be boys in white T-shirts and white shorts and white plimsolls running across the stage and hopping over um, a horse, a gymnastic yes. horse, over and over. So that would happen 40 times and then they would move the angle of the horse. And, and dramaturgically, they... what do you feel that horse was saying? I assume it was about, I don't know, uh, the body. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and youth and age. And then they would switch on UV lights so that the white t-shirts, I mean, it was, it was high-tech stuff. This is quite something. Yeah, yeah, it was a thing. So I was very... Uh, involved in all of that not in the I wasn't in the gymnastics class <laughs> when I mean competitive I mean that there was a snobbery around uh, around who got to do what and who which teacher was seen as adequately artistic or not and I had a very artistic teacher who had a pipe band in the class and an orchestra and we all learned to play the spoons and then 40 of us played the spoons dressed as elves on the national concert hall stage uh, I danced in a dress on a on the back of a truck in the grounds of the National Concert Hall that same day in a full Afro wig, uh, and we did. I was Dorothy Snow White. It was an all boys school. I hasten to add, uh, and like Joseph and his amazing technique. So there was just a lot going on. And this this is simultaneously some of the maddest things anyone has ever said on this podcast <laughs> and yet simultaneously it seems like a lot of sense I'm going to get like in terms of your aesthetic now I feel I feel like I know when the, the, the 40 spoon playing kids yes I, like I, I, think mean, I think it's only a matter of time before that gets employed to be honest with you when you all see it finally <laughs> then you'll know in my version of King um, Lear you'll know where it came from it must have been a very difficult time living so close to Port Marnock but not in Port Marnock because of Port Marnock being the greatest town in the world was, yeah. was that a hardship um, we managed to struggle through <laughs> largely because my understanding of Port Marnock is that there is no town there's just oh, 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 this is going to get really pro kill really quick uh, <laughs> no we, we would we would venture to uh, Port Marnock we'd walk the 12 minutes because they had a nice beach but we'd quickly walk back as well <laughs> yes indeed indeed I love it um, right so talk to me then when do you start to go I might like to do this for real um not until I started in UCD. So I started in UCD after uh, my leaving cert, obviously, and I was doing English music and psychology uh, as a general arts degree. And I was about four months into that and I hated it. Uh, I wasn't a big fan of UCD. No offense to anyone who goes there or works there. Uh, there was something about the, uh, the dynamic that happens it just felt like it wasn't for me right and also I wasn't the thing that I had been most interested in in that first term was the drama element of the English degree and I'd always as I said done drama all the way through my life and I thought this is the bit this is the thing that really piques my interest this is the thing that I really want to spend more time examining so I dropped out of UCD went to live in London for about seven months and then the following year uh reapplied for for theatre studies and uh, ended up in DIT in Rathmines then from the following October. Yeah. Uh, How formative was the London period? 
It was formative personally. Rather, yeah. Well, that's not true. I mean, the, I, I had that experience of being, you know, I was 19 and closeted and uh, had never really found space to be myself. It didn't really feel in the world to a right. certain degree. So what was great about London was the anonymity it offered. I really felt a sense of empowerment in London in that it offered me a blank slate and it seemed to suggest that I could determine myself and I could be whoever because nobody knew me and yeah. nobody gave a crap by the way who I was. Uh, shit. Uh, <laughs> so, so it really, it was just very important for me personally to yeah. kind of come to terms with myself. And also I went to the theatre. I, you know, I was very nerdish at the time. I wasn't, I wasn't out really partying in London. I would... I was working uh, in room service in quite a posh hotel in South Kensington and then every time that I every day that I had time off I would go to the theatre in London and find myself in you know theatre bookshops and picking up the empty space and reading it and you know having my brain explode and all that sort of stuff it was great it was an amazing time Um, talk to me then a bit about Rough Minds we've had an awful lot of people on here who've gone down the UCD route and gone, you know, Dram Sock or Trinity Players or the kind of, you know, Gaelic of the Lear and stuff. Yeah. We've had fewer, I think John Morton maybe, but we've had fewer yes. that went through the Rathmines um, school. Yeah. Uh, but by all accounts, anyone who's gone through it has had a good time and like it's been kind of yeah. like a nice, like a good broad uh, foundation. Is that how you felt it was? Yeah, I mean, definitely. It's a, it, it, it is a very, uh, it exposed me to a lot of new things. It's a real survey course. It's the type of course that allows you to experience uh, like a wide uh, I was going to say panoply but that sounds like re- I, I don't think it's the right word and I also think it's a bit too fancy I think yeah. that my brain is just a bit slow and I can't think of like this simpler <laughs> more accurate word uh, it gives you a, a exposure to a broad range of theatrical yeah. styles and forms historically and, and currently in contemporary uh, drama and theatre as well Um the reason I went to DIT, it was largely, I didn't know, I, didn't, I don't come from like a family that has any connection to theatre or any uh, connection to the arts. Indeed, I think, you know, it's a real generational shift. My parents definitely didn't have the opportunity to pursue or certainly didn't, um, their perspective of the world was such that they, there was a very upwardly mobile generation. That uh, My mom grew up in Finglas, my dad grew up in Mount Brown beside St. James's, and really you could feel that the ambition of that generation was to progress, yeah. to, uh, to progress socially. And they did that, and you know, to the point where you know their children were in piano classes, and they lived in Malahide, and there was a certain, you know, there was a there was a huge amount of success in that, but also a great deal of sacrifice in terms yeah. of like not having jobs and doing things that they necessarily found hugely fulfilling within and of themselves, yeah. which and they inspired in me and my brother and sister a real uh, determination to do what you want to do, right? Because. They, I suppose that they, I mean, not to go around saying that they walk under a cloud every day, but they were just like, it's important for the amount of time that you spend working in your life yeah. that you want to be doing the thing that you want to do. Now, that's all well and good. They're still concerned that I don't have a mortgage, yeah. but, you know, and I understand that, but it's also their fault. So, <laughs> <laughs> and as I said to my dad, you know, if he had worked harder, I could have had a trust fund and I wouldn't have to worry about this. 
So it's a laziness on his part more than anything. It is. It is. It is. Um, so your time at Rathmines, as it came to an end, were you at that stage thinking? exclusively down the directing route was there performance were there I mean it's kind of 40% academic the Rathmines uh, the DIT curriculum and 60% performance so but by the end of the third year I'm quite a I'm quite a bossy person and uh, I was very involved in like with my classmates and helping them kind of work on their showcase elements or their performance stuff or any devising work we did. I was always heavily involved. I was quite obnoxious at the time. I mean, I was, <laughs> at the time, I hasten to add, in that I was very myopic about, because I had made the gamble and the, the, the investment in this, what I knew to be a kind of precarious uh, profession, I was very hard line about it and gave everyone a very hard time, including a lot of the lecturers. I mean, like I was really intense and full on for a lot of people. Uh, but I, at that stage, you know, I was monkish in my approach okay. to, to theatre. I, I was determined that this was going to be it. I was going to throw everything behind this and, uh, and everything else could fall by the wayside if it did. It was quite intense for a lot of people that's kind of cool I like people and I mean I just think a bit of work ethic is no harm sometimes it's a little full I mean (laughs) you know the journey from uh, DIT to now has really been one about trying to find a work-life balance yeah uh, because you can't really sustain that sort of intensity in a way I think that is going to continue to replenish the work that you do you know I think when you're young and hungry maybe it's okay for a while but like you say Yes. Long-term viability and sustainability, it ain't, it ain't really a runner. I also think it, 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 it applies subconsciously and unconsciously such a great deal of pressure on the work because the work has to live up to your inordinately high standards. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It has to be perfection or it has to achieve revelation or transcendence at every given moment. And so it, that's kind of a crippling position to put yourself in. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, yeah finding a greater plasticity and generosity towards yourself and the people that you make is some, and the people that you work with rather uh, is important yeah. I, I've found anyway over the last while Talk to me then about some of the early work out of Rathmines because I have recollections of seeing like Durang Durang and things like that So that was not out of so what happened was I came out of uh, I went the long the really long way around so okay. I came out of, Rathmine, uh, of Rathmines by the end of that stage I got an agent out for my showcase, but I knew that it was direction that I wanted to do. Okay. I didn't have a clue how to get involved. And the only real drawback with the DIT course is that it is slightly separate. I mean, separate from the industry in Dublin okay. or the culture in Dublin. Yeah. Like the Trinity course is woven into the fabric of yeah. of the theatre scene here, as is the, the gaiety course as well. I mean, people are much more available to going and seeing that work or much use, more used yeah. to going and seeing it. DIT, up to that point, certainly, it's changed slightly now, was not afforded that kind of position. So I didn't know how to go about, I don't know, making work or even getting involved so what I did basically was uh, I wrote letters to directors that or uh, that I liked, that shows that I liked. And the previous Fringe, I had seen Master Harold and the Boys yes. that Barbara McQueen had directed for Calypso. So I wrote to her. Uh, I'd really loved that production. I wrote to her. She responded. I went in and met her. And then I was uh, brought on as her assistant 
on Operation Easter, which is a show that happened in uh, 2006, which, happened, which was a site-specific show in Kilmainham Jail written by Donald O'Kelly about the uh, leaders of the Irish re- uh, Rebellion. Um, so I worked on that, ended up kind of half being in it <laughs> and ASMing it. There you go. And got sucked into a vortex then. Uh, uh, I mean, I really got a great deal of experience from Calypso. Within that position, I worked on talking to Terrace that they did as well and also Bones, which was another show that they did. But I, through that, I ended up finding myself in the position of stage manager rather than rather than moving towards direction. Yeah. I was getting slightly stuck, I thought, in that position. And as a result of that, I had also got stage management positions with Nomad and Living Dread when they were touring. I yeah. the Sons of Ulster marching towards the Somme. And then I started to flip out. So that was about three or four years. And I was like, oh my God, I'm still no closer to actually getting the thing that I wanted. You know, I feel semi-useful or semi-connected. I was a terrible stage manager, like really bad. When I see the stage managers that I work with now, I just <laughs> don't know how Porik or Barbara put up at me because <laughs> I, was, I was watching the work on the floor and not, do you know what I mean? Of course. I was totally absorbed and I'd be like, I'm not sure that that moment is real. <laughs> you know? I think that, do you not think that, anyway, I'm not, you know, making lists to make sure that the props don't go missing. Um, yes, exactly. And not be just being dispassionate enough to enable the show to, to happen. Anyway, that's fine. Uh, yes, which is um, like the best example of that is when I locked the period underwear from Observe the Sons of Ulster into a dry cleaners in Drogheda on the day of the show. So we're taking in on tour. I put in, I put in the stuff to get washed. We go in and take the show. It runs over. It's five past six. The underwear is locked. Oh, that's good. In a dry cleaners. Yeah. And <laughs> and Frank McGuinness is coming that night. <laughs> of to course the show. he is. Of course he is. So cut to myself and Martin Cahill in like the duns outside Drogheda trying to find like mock period kind of underwear. I don't think famed for that. It's not famed for it. So that was horrific. But it turned out that the the tech manager of the theatre, now I may have this slightly wrong, so I hope this isn't slanderous. The tech manager of the theatre had gone out on a couple of dates or something with the (laughs) daughter of the man who owned the dry cleaners. Never called her back. Or I got that vibe that it certainly was just like, it just stopped. He then had to call her. So the first like text after, after four years. Six months <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, girl, how's it going? <laughs> that was great that time that we went to whatever Titanic. Um, but you know what I'm really into? Period yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so because of that, thank God for small town Ireland, we were able to track down the man who then came down and opened it up and let us out. But that was glorious. that was intense. <laughs> But anyway, yeah, so I was stuck in a role that I wasn't particularly good at and wasn't particularly satisfied in. And I got a bit fed up and started, I just refused stage management stuff and was like, look, that's not what you want to do, Grant. Didn't know how to do it. Kind of pushed away from theatre a little bit. Didn't go to as much stuff because I still went to theatre voraciously all through that period. Yeah. And then I got, I was frustrated with myself and frustrated, you know, projecting blame onto the industry in terms of like, why haven't you thrown open your arms to me yet? Um, so I started doing waitering jobs. I 
moved in with uh, I just basically went on the lash for two years which nice. I had never done like through college or I'd never really been a partier and then suddenly I found myself at 27 kind of like just having the crack for yeah. two years and that was great that really helped shift my perspective I wasn't sure if theatre was going to happen or not I was kind of making my peace with that and then I knew uh, Camille Lucy Ross, she was a friend of a friend of mine who had been with, in DIT and we had met up a couple of times when we'd gone over to meet that friend who had been studying musical theatre in London. She'd gone on to do that after DIT. So we'd met a couple of times and at one of the performances, I think our, our mate was on the tour of The Sound of Music at this point and it was playing in the board gosh. It was our first time seeing her in a big show and we both went separately to see it and on that occasion Camille was like oh I'm doing this show in a few months it's Durang Durang we're looking forward to it I had read Christopher Durang when I was in uh, college and I knew some of his work not the plays that she was doing but I knew the bigger ones the ones about the nun and stuff I can't remember what it's called um, and I liked his wit it was dark and sardonic and knowing and all of that that was good so we were chatting a bit about that and I was like oh let me know when it's on Cut to kind of two months later, I get a phone call from Camille saying, our director's fallen through. We start rehearsals next Monday, so in a week. I was working two jobs at the time, two different restaurants, kind of 60 hours a week. And I remember standing in the restaurant and being like, oh, this is the phone call. If I don't say yes to this, I can never give out again. And I love giving out eggs. So I can never say, oh, you know, the opportunity never arose or I never was able to find a way in. I was like, this is the way in. I was like, right, okay, yeah, no, I'll definitely do it. So I hung up the phone, quit one of my jobs, kept the other one at night, read the plays, started rehearsal on the Monday. Now we had four weeks rehearsal, which was luxurious considering because nobody's getting paid so you know what's the problem um and it was a great cast which had already been assembled in fairness by camille so mo dumford was in it uh camille yeah rebecca grimes uh donica od chris gallagher and uh annie gill so we just started work on it uh followed my nose made the show as good as i could make it didn't know how it was going to go it was on the pierce center put on the show and it went really well Uh, and a lot of the agents of the actors came to see it and because they saw that it was a really good showcase for them they hustled a lot of directors to come and to drag themselves down to the Pierce Centre and see that so a lot of heads saw it down there and it generated a degree of buzz I mean there was an energy and a spirit around the production which was made a virtue of its uh, of its of its poverty right you know what I mean which tried to supersede the lack of uh, uh, of production values with a certain recklessness Uh, and so that seemed to go very well one of the people who was dragged down to see I think that Lara who's friends with Camille herself and Keen came to see it and then they made Lynn come to see it so I knew that Lynn had seen it and Jimmy Faye and different people had seen it but I didn't really know where it was going to go then Duncan and Camille asked me to direct their Showing a bag. Showing a bag, which was happening a couple of months later, which uh, was pocket music. Uh, and I did that, and then that won the Little Gem Award that year at the Fringe. And then on the back of those two things, I applied for seeds, and then I was accepted on that. So within, like, four months of having directed the first show, I was suddenly on this prestigious artist development program, and it, I was kind of a little punch drunk and couldn't really 
understand how it was happening so quickly. It's kind of amazing. And I love the fact that you knew at the time that the phone rang with, this is the call. This, yes. is, this is the one for page 86 of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You well, say yes, yes, you yeah. Um, and I think it, that's amazing um, that it happened as quickly as it did. No one who has come through Seeds has anything other than just glowing positive things to say about it. Yeah. How useful was it for you? Because clearly there was a very obvious aptitude for directing there. I mean, you yeah. say all these people came and saw you and instantly, like anyone could see this yeah. was something you could do. Yeah. How useful was it then to go, right, now I can properly target this and focus and, and dive deep into it for the for the period of the of the program? It took me longer to believe that I could do it than that. I, I mean, I had liked the process and the result of Durang Durang and Pocket Music, but I was still, it was still very much the question in my head was whether this is something I could do as a, I hadn't quite got to the stage of why do I want to do it? Do you okay. know what I mean? So, and I also felt that I was starting late, uh, which I was, you know, all of the other uh, people on the Seeds program were a good five or six years younger than yeah. me. Uh, so I felt the pressure to get more shows under my belt and quickly. And that's exactly what I did. So I thought, I, I didn't know what to expect of the Seeds program and, um, what I was surprised most by was the conversation that developed between the participants and the company. The company, it, it surprised me how invested they were in the development of the artists involved in the Seeds program. Sincerely interested. I don't yeah. mean like, it didn't feel like a box ticking exercise at all. They would come and see all of the work, you work on their work. There's a, there's a lot of informal and very useful conversation around the work. Um, um, a kind of a compare and contrast thing. You could, you could talk to people within the company about the practicalities of making the show, absolutely, but also about the broader artistic uh, reach behind what you're trying to do. So I was surprised by that. Yeah. I thought it was going to be a more regimented sit over there in the corner do these activities yes exactly out, yeah, and, and we'll off. go on a couple of trips yeah. you'll do a couple of placements and you'll be grateful but it wasn't that it was a, it a real there was a real sense of welcome and home I think that's the thing that feels really I mean because you have space in the building you have a place to exist there and they want you to be there and because you're there like as um, colleagues because you're working and they're working you develop a, a very uh useful professional relationship with them yeah. yeah yeah it seems to be fantastic um so was assassins then the showcase out of seeds yeah so i did like seven shows in during the during the kind of 18 months that i was on yeah. because as i said i want i was like i am going to flex my muscles here and get Se seven shows in 18 months sounds really easy i think, I think that's, that's fine uh but I was kind of drunk on it as well, you know, and uh, I was still working at night to facilitate all of that because it was all very much on kind of a, a fringe uh, level. So there wasn't a great deal of payment happening. And then Assassins was was the final show. So I did like shows with uh, Hugh Travers, Clear the Air. I did Broadening with Peter Dunn. Um, Pocket Music came back. Duran Duran came back. Both of those Lambo tours. Well. Lambo then the following uh the following fringe and then after that assassins uh 
Yeah, and I really, they really, Rough Magic really give you on the seeds program enough rope to hang yourself. <laughs> I mean, that's part of the experience. That's, you know, it's advisory in terms of like what they feel you can achieve or not achieve, but they're also, you determine the production and you determine its scale, where it happens. You're given a budget and it's like, you know, you make the thing you want to make. And I wanted to make Assassins. I, had, I said it at the interview and they were like, if you could do anything right now, I was like, I'd, I'd direct this because I had started listening to it and I had become slightly obsessed with it because I've always been very interested in the line between high art and popular art. Here we go. Always. That, that seam is very important to me because uh, I don't believe in esotericism, really. I don't, I, in a kind of a self-reflexive theatre or theatre that's talking about itself, don't believe in it. I get an awful lot from it. I just, off, I find if the, I like things to be smart, certainly, and uh, artistically ambitious and incredibly well-crafted and everything, but I, but I want to talk to as many people as I can. Yeah. That's my ambition with the work that I make. And I think that musical theatre is a really effective gateway drug for theatre. It's how I got into it. Uh, So I have a great deal of respect for it in that form. But also with someone like Sondheim, who is using the form of musical theatre, knowing how available it is to audiences and how audiences come to musical theatre with a far less uh, prejudiced idea against themselves in relation to the form they don't think i won't get this they think this is going to entertain me and i'm a, and i am we are more they come on a more equal level yeah. so to be able to subvert that form to to uh, investigate and interrogate complex ideas within that form seems to me a really smart idea firstly and also it has the right kind of slyness and irony that really appeals to me and my sense of humor were you delighted or surprised at all with how well it landed because i mean it can be a tricky show when we saw recently the the recent production the gate struggled to kind of land properly yeah Uh, but there was just rave response to your to be honest with you the experience of making Assassins was really difficult time for me because as I was talking earlier on, I had in the, I have a tendency to overburden myself with expectation. And I certainly did that with myself in the making of this show. So what, so yes, while I, I don't think that I was in a position at that time to enjoy the experience of the show. Gotcha. Uh, all I could see were my shortcomings. Okay. Not the like, I mean, because the cast was unbelievable, and having assembled this team to be in it, particularly for a seed showcase, uh, and the the ambition and scale of the show. I mean, we were quite, we were uh, uh, we were a very aspirant group. <laughs> I mean, it was Matt Smith, Rosemary Kenna, Zia Holly, Hugh Travers, and myself, and the four of us who were working on the showcase because Hugh was doing a reading. I mean, myself and Rosemary were like, "Well, we're not doing the cube. You won't find us there." We, we both saw ourselves and see ourselves as, you know, main stage directors. That's where yeah. we're going. And so we were like, this is an opportunity to throw down a gauntlet and be like, keep your eye on us. Yeah. And also we are both kind of text-based directors. We both work in response to text. So we wanted to make a statement with the shows that we were doing. So Assassin seemed like the right choice for that in terms of 
its ambition and its wit and intelligence and also you know I believed very much in the work and that's always important uh, but the experience of making it was quite a fraught one for me so I and I didn't really enjoy the experience of it being on in the way that I wish that I had now retrospectively because you know at the time I was a bit bru- uh, like I had bruised myself in the process of making it and it's not it wasn't until afterwards when I kept hearing from people their experience yeah. of having seen it that I actually got to really appreciate what it had achieved so that's a, that's part of, that's part of what I was talking about about this journey over the last 15 years and certainly over the last kind of 3 is about trying to find a way to be a professional and what I mean by that is to move towards a more dispassionate approach or disinterested approach. And I don't mean that as in like uninterested. I just mean that if so much of yourself is invested in the thing that you feel personally exposed by it and that you are the subject of assessment, mm. then you are not in a very good position to be making cool and objective decisions. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so that process uh, has really only come to fruition for me in the last kind of 12 months where I feel where I enjoy the experience of making the show so much more than I ever have and that's that's a re I am that's the thing that I'm most proud of that's have that's happened over the few years is being able to tackle that and engage with it and try to overcome it so that I can have a career yeah. do you know what I mean basically yeah. because I love it so much and I don't want you know, there was a certain point where I was like, this is going to cost you. You're not going to be able to do this because the cost of it to yourself and to like, you know, your personal life is is too great. Whereas I don't feel like that now. And now I feel like match fit and like really energized by the opportunity of making shows. But that seems to come through experience, I think. And through the opportunity of developing your, really finding your own voice in making work which really happened after uh, my residency at the Abbey because I went from the Seeds to a residency at the Abbey as the resident assistant director which lasted for the guts of 18 months uh, because I ended up being brought back to to look after the tour of Plowing the Stars as it travelled around North America so uh, for the guts of 18 months I was there and I really enjoyed that experience I also enjoyed really seeing how an institution functions, yeah. uh, the negotiating the politics of that and seeing how programming comes and goes. And, you know, the Abbey is, it's a, it's a tricky position to hold Absolutely. to be the director of the Abbey uh, because you, all, you, just, you always have a target on your back and, yeah. uh, you know, that can... It's just interesting to see how different people engage with that challenge and what they choose well, to do with it. I think it's an impossible brief. To I mean, to fully fulfill the brief yeah. is an impossible task. Yeah. So you can only, I think once you accept that, yeah. <clears throat> that if you program a full season of female playwrights, people go, oh, where's the Irish language work? Yes. Go, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. the full season work? <laughs> so go, oh, you're not touring this year, are you? And you go, oh, okay, great. Well, oh, no, dance again. You go, well, okay, well, look, you, so I don't think you'll ever keep all the people happy. And no, such, you won't. You can just roll, roll the dice as best you can. Yes. And say, you know, your take on it. But it's a, it's a specific brief. Yes, it is. And uh, I don't <laughs> envy anybody who gets the, who gets the gig. 
I want to talk to you about a particular strand of that residency at the Abbey. Yeah. Because for actors, you get to be in different rehearsals all the time with different directors. Yes. And see different directing styles. Yes. Directors don't. They get to yes. be in their rehearsal room and only see their own style. Yeah. How useful was it to be exposed to the good, bad and indifferent yeah. uh, of those different directors you would have worked with through that time? Very. Um, very useful. And also, I always saw my role as the assistant director there in a way... It was, it's not to come in and impose your own artistic vision or your own opinion on things. Uh, it is to mould yourself around, to try and understand as best you can the, the thrust of what the director wants to achieve and to understand what sort of process they want to go through and to try and be able to see the work as they're seeing it so that you can best assist in the making of it mm-hmm. rather than pulling against it and being like well I think you should have a tap solo yeah, here this, this isn't the show I'd make yes exactly yeah. what use is that you're going to be in the room for six weeks anyway so uh, and I find that I enjoy that I enjoyed that process a lot it's like it's like being an actor in a way and it's like you're training yourself to think in a different way do you know what I mean and by training yourself to think like them you get it opened up for me certain possibilities in terms of my own work. And you can know? you magpie bits and pieces and techniques and stuff? All the time. Magpie all the time. Yeah. It's all theft. <laughs> it is. I mean, you know, it's, there are references that I can see in the work that I've made that I know are direct for references to. I know the Titus Andronicus that Selena Cartman made. I, that I, that was I, quite I, a show. <laughs> that was quite a show. And I'm not saying that the show that I'm making was even, is even in the, the spirit of the Titus Andronicus, but I know that that idea is coming from that or so many shows that I've seen uh, have influenced the different things that I make. It just comes together in a different way. But similarly, when you're working with, uh, I found it, I really enjoyed engaging with the directors. I found it, quite easy to do to uh, meet them on a level to engage with the work to try and support the making of the work I enjoyed all of that I mean it gets frustrating after 12 months when you're like oh my god can I actually just do something um, and you're slightly chomping at the bit to do it but it's also you know as you said it is a it's a rare experience uh, Mm, is that true? I don't know, actually. For the generation of directors that are coming up now and the ones slightly before this, assisting is a, is, is now de rigueur. Do you know okay. what I mean? Everyone does a degree of it. So it's become part of the process of becoming a director, I think. Uh, and also because a lot of early opportunities that pay are assistant work. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think it, it, it has now become a little pathway in and of itself in a way that it wouldn't have been, say, when Gary or Lynn were first coming out as directors. There was no kind of channel. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, I enjoyed it a lot. And I think it did have a, an influence on the work. Can we talk for a minute about why you're such an asshole and I hate you? <laughs> Absolutely, please. Um, why did you do the effect when I wanted to do the effect? <laughs> I didn't know, Ingo, personally. Like, genu- I was within two days of writing an email to get the rights to the show serious? when I heard you motherfuckers were doing it. <laughs> you fucking asshole. I'm very sorry, I'm very sorry. To be fair, your production was much better than mine would ever have been, <laughs> so I don't mind. That's um, very sweet. It was gorgeous. Thanks, yeah. No, I had been a big fan of the play ever since I'd read it, and it, it also, I was, I'm very intrigued in that sort of, uh, I, I think that she uh, kind of really brilliantly captures in that a sort of a philosophical reach with um, 
uh, which is kind of constrained or, 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 or um, refracted through the prism of science and yeah. that there's an inherent tension in that uh, an inherent conflict which gives way to the drama so I really enjoyed exploring that and uh, that was my first kind of professional show that was the show that I was doing that you know everyone was getting paid yeah. that was the first time that that happened so that was a big deal and uh, that felt like a, the right kind of step forward and I was eager to get to get it on the move you know it's interesting to me that you've that that's the kind of you know one of the choices for you to go look I want to get out there and kind of this is me making a roll of the dice we're going on this yeah. and also that you talked about being so heavily interested in text because a lot of the stuff that I've seen from you has such a visual and stylistic flair mm. that it seems uh, that I'm a little bit surprised to hear you talk about kind of that you know text being that key for you as well do you feel am I being stupid and thinking those two have to be mutually exclusive or do you think you can just incorporate a bit of a bit of style in everything um I'm drawn to, to theatre with a capital T. Yeah. I'm drawn to uh, theatricality. I think that with the option to include song and dance and movement and music and, uh, and uh, to develop a, vi- a visual language which is playful and knowing why would you not it's kind of part of it's kind of part of it i'm like part of i i see in my own work i think it's why i feel such an affiliation with uh rough magic not only because i came to the seeds program and because they're the central tenants of the company speak to me uh i i think there is like an inherent an inherent celebratory quality to the work it's it's it, it i can't really get past the joy of dressing up Yet, and I think that that is part of the the life of the work that we make. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I we can't not touch on the point of me sitting at a Shakespeare piece in the Lear, seeing the boys come out in all white, and just somewhere in the cultural memory of my body going, hang on a second, that's that's four or five men all, all in white. There's only and, and not, not fully being able to articulate it <laughs> until they launched into a rendition of Boys to Men featuring Mariah Carey One Sweet Day. Yeah. Not just one verse and one chorus. The whole fucking thing. Oh, the whole thing. Because there is no better director to see a joke and then drive that joke. <laughs> because there is no better laugh. There's no more fulfilling moment when you've pushed to the degree where they're like, are they still going? And then the key changes and then you drop confetti on them. <laughs> That's the thing when people lose their shit, really lose their shit. Legitimately one of the most magic moments I've ever had in a theatre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes. That was the production, though, that like I really started to find my own voice. Right. That was the first show that I'd ever seen that I, that I could see my own personality in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Very vividly. I mean, obviously it was there in, in, in all of the other shows because it can't not be. But that one, it was writ large. <laughs> and... That was a great process. I loved making that show and with uh, and with that team of actors. I had caught them at just the right time. They were a very confident year Special and they were, they were hungry. And if I had said, let's go outside and pebble dash the front of the Lear, they would have been like, yes, let's do it. Why has nobody thought of this? Immediately, let's go. So it felt like we could have done anything within those four weeks. So that was cool. I mean, in terms of... One sweet day. I knew that I want that. I knew that I wanted to tailor the production to the youth of the pe- of the people that I was making because I don't 
My, I, 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 I myself has a slight resistance in my imagination to, uh, to the lie of, um, oh, I'm 60 years old and I'm actually 20. And I think as well, you know, it's such an, when you're trying to showcase people, showcase who they are. Do you know what I mean? So I really wanted to, and much do about nothing is basic. I mean, it's a very hedonistic play about people who are just all in a gaff for a week getting wrecked messing up other people's love stories falling in and out of love everyone's kind of on the lash the whole time so it felt very available to a young to a kind of a more youthful interpretation youthful I mean I say that as though you when you you hear yourself use words like youthful you know then that you are no longer part of that and there's there's a death in that really, yeah, isn't it? I, I once referred to myself as hip and trendy. And like, oh, well, now I'm definitely not then. <laughs> yes, exactly. So Through that specific choice of words. Just hammer that nail into that coffin of coolness. Um, finally, so, what are you most excited about as you look forward? I mean, I think, you know, that you've returned to Sondheim again already in Merry We're Along, which is the first Lear show I missed since the very first year. Are you serious? It uh, breaks my heart, don't mention it. Okay. Um, plus, we've seen you do Annie and stuff like that, so it feels like the musical thing is still going to be a part of that strand, but is there, not are there yeah. great unfulfilled ambitions, but like as you look ahead, what are you most excited about on the horizon for you? I mean, the, the variety that I managed to strike in the first year of making work of going from uh, the effect to Shakespeare with Much Ado About Nothing to Annie. That sort of variety, that sort of versatility is really what I'm excited about. Because I I don't want to pigeonhole myself. I'm still really curious about how to make things. I don't really, you know, you start everything and you're like, I don't know, let's (laughs) let's try. that excites me. As I said, I feel like I'm becoming, I'm getting better at being a professional in the industry. So I, through that, you start to find muscle in what you're doing and the ability to uh, to read the work and to push the work and test the work uh, and be braver with the choices that you make. So all of that excites me. Uh, there is, uh, I think as well, there's a very vibrant. I feel that there's a very vibrant uh, theatre scene happening at the moment and I find it incredibly nourishing and fulfilling to go and see a lot of the high calibre work because I don't find that there's many things that I don't have an opinion on, whether that thing is positive or negative. I feel like I am being provoked and agitated as opposed to being appeased and that feels... uh, exciting to be part of that to be part of that dynamic and to contribute to it um so yeah i mean versatility variety that's important to me and i also want to do you know bigger things and more elaborate things you're, you're talking about the production of west side story where the sharks and the jets are malahide <laughs> <Bernard, can't you? laughs> we've talked about this before <laughs> Ronald Phelan, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much, Django. 
So there you have it, the great Ronan Phelan, such a great chat with him, honest, frank, forthright and a really interesting take on his route through the business. I was delighted to be able to have that chat with him. And so that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of theatrical goings on around the country at the Abbey Theatre. It's The Lost O'Casey from Anu. They also have Richard III starring Aaron Monaghan and Rathmines Road and they've also got Double Cross coming up that co-production with the Lyric in Belfast. At the Gate Theatre it is the completely sold out Hamlet starring my pal Ruth Negga. At the Gaiety Theatre it's Bluebird's Castle and Tom Crean, Antarctic Explorer. At the Board Gosh, they've got Rock of Ages coming in next. And at the Lear, it's going to be Serious Money from the, the graduating class up there. Serious Money coming up soon by Carol Churchill. At the Mermaid, it's Underneath by Pat Kinnevan. And at Smock Alley, it's St. Nicholas, Mother's Nature, and The Streets Are Ours. Over in Blanche at Dreyacht, it's Home Theatre Ireland, which has been an incredible project for them, bringing theatre out into people's homes all around the area. Just a fantastic project by all accounts all round. In Clontarf at the Viking it's the last few nights of the boys which I believe is also completely sold out but check there for returns and that'll be followed by And Thank You at the Project Arts Centre in Temple Bar it's the end of Eddie and then Rough Magic have the portrait of the artist on the road directed by their great Roland Phelan who was with us this week. They are at On Green On tonight. They're coming to Backstage in Longford, Theatre Royal in Waterford The Everyman in Cork, Glore in Ennis and the Town Hall in Galway so do keep an eye out for that production on the road Heading south to the Everyman in Cork it's the night Nightingale and the Rose and then Waterford Whispers Live is coming there too at the Town Hall in Galway it's Three Hail Marys and Bad Jews by Josh Harmon and then also that'll be followed by the Barbaro Festival at the Lime Tree in Limerick they've got Holy Mary followed by Tan and up north at the Lyric in Belfast tonight is opening night of Double Cross and that of course is starring Ian Toner and the brilliant Charlotte McCurry I'm really looking forward to seeing that so look that is us that is episode 49 in the books we will of course be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers but in the meantime this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. For Angus Og McAnally, I'm Angus Og McAnally. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>